Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Gordon Stewart, Senior Minister of Westminster Church and moderator of the Town Hall Forum. The focus of the Town Hall Forum is Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. Today's speaker is Mr. Jeremy Rifkin, whose voice has consistently argued that our concern for efficiency is endangering the biosphere itself as well as the meaning of human life and the nature of human life. Writing about Mr. Rifkin's latest book, The End of Work, Peter Huber wrote in Forbes magazine that Mr. Rifkin has become this generation's George Orwell, writing of how advanced technology will eliminate employment and lead to social chaos. Jeremy Rifkin is the author of 13 books on the impact of te technological changes on the economy, the workforce, society, and the environment. His books have been translated into 15 languages and are used in hundreds of colleges and universities and graduate schools around the world. The End of Work, published in 1995, is the result of a three-year study of the changing conditions and nature of work in the information age. Mr. Rifkin holds a degree in economics from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and a degree in international affairs from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy of Tufts University. He has been influential in shaping public policy in the United States and around the world. He has testified before numerous congressional committees and has had consistent success in litigation against the government to ensure responsible government policies on a variety of environmental and technological issues. His unique perspective and social commentary have made him a frequent guest on numerous television programs, including Face the Nation, Nightline, The Today Show, The Lair NewsHour 2020, Larry King Live, and Firing Line, among others. He has also been featured in many of the nation's most prominent news weeklies. One of the nation's leading public policy journals, the National Journal, named Mr. Rifkin one of 150 people in the United States who have the most influence in shaping federal government policy. I'm sure Mr. Rifkin hopes that that is the case. <laughs> Please welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Mr. Jeremy Rifkin, on the topic, Putting Our Culture in Focus, Labor, Technology, and Spirit. Good afternoon, everyone. I believe I overdressed. So I'm going to get a little more comfortable here. Okay. All right. How many of you have relatives, neighbors, or friends who have been downsized out of a job in the last three years? Raise your hands and look around this audience. Raise them high. Take a look. Well, it's a great majority of the people here this afternoon. Of those, of those that have lost their jobs in the last three years, how many have secured new jobs with comparable pay, benefit, and job security. Raise your hands. Take a look around, very few. There seems to be a growing anecdotal gap 
between the experience of millions of Americans around the issue of work and the official picture painted by the President of the United States and the Wall Street investment community. The President was reelected. He said that he has created 10 million new good jobs. But as I cross this country, the number one issue on the minds of every American family, will there be a place for me in this new global economy? And if your parents or grandparents are asking, will there be a place for the next generation in the 21st century? The President says we have 5.4% unemployment, but those statistics hide the true story. They don't tell you about the millions and millions of American workers who have stopped looking. If your unemployment compensation runs out, you give up, you stop looking for work, you're no longer counted as unemployed. It's rather Kafkaesque. We have six million workers in this country. We call them the missing men. They're almost all men. They've given up. They're not looking. So they're not counted as unemployed. In addition, we have millions of Americans who had full-time jobs before the last recession. They're now working a few days a month on just-in-time employment. They're temporary workers, part-time workers, outsource workers. When you add up the real unemployment figures in the United States today, unemployment hovers at around 13.5% of the adult workforce, comparable to Germany. We are in deep denial in this country. The President says we've also created good jobs, but how do we square that with the government figures on income distribution? The Census Bureau just reported a few months ago that we have the greatest disparity in income distribution in this country since 1945. 24% of our youngsters are below the poverty level. We rank second to last of all industrial countries on this planet in income distribution. The President says this is the bridge to the 21st century. We are in the midst of a fundamental transformation in the nature of work. We're moving out of the industrial age. We're moving into the information age. Sophisticated computers, telecommunication technologies, robots, and other intelligent machines are replacing traditional job categories. If you're a file clerk, a secretary, if you work in the mailroom, if you're on the factory floor, if you're garden variety middle management, if you're a bank teller, a librarian, a telephone operator, if you're a jobber, a wholesaler, or a retailer, the chances are your job will not be here in 10 years from now. The best way to understand the enormity of this shift taking place in the nature of commerce and work is to look at agriculture in the last century. You know, we forget we were a nation of farmers here 100 years ago. Today, less than 2% of American workers are on the farm. We have very sophisticated technology with such capacity that we actually have to pay farmers not to produce. Keep that in mind. Too much productive capacity against too little demand. Now we're seeing a comparable technology revolution sweep through the manufacturing and service sectors across the world. When I was a young man studying economics 30 years ago, we were a nation of blue-collar factory workers. A third of our workers were on the factory floor in the 1960s. Today, only 17% of our workers are in the factories. But we're still number one in manufacturing in the world. We're just doing it with less people, more sophisticated machines. The U.S. Steel Corporation, here's a company that in 1980 had 120,000 workers. 
Today, USX has only 20,000 employees, but they're producing more steel than 120,000 workers did at that company 16 years ago. Magnify this example toward every industry and sector, and we have a transparent read of the future. We are moving toward the era of near workerless factories. By the year 2020, we will see the virtual elimination of the blue-collar factory worker from world history. Less than 2% of the global workforce will be involved in factory work in 25 years from now. We shouldn't be surprised. We did this in agriculture in less than 70 years. It's long been assumed that if you lose a job in manufacturing, you can be retrained for a job in the service arena, white-collar work. But as you know, here in Minneapolis and St. Paul, all the major white-collar industries are also moving into the information age. In the insurance industry, the banking, finance, wholesale, and retail sectors, all the companies, small, medium, and large, are in the process of what we call deconstruction. They're eliminating layer after layer after layer of infrastructure and management. They're flattening the old corporate pyramid. They're creating a new type of organization for the information age called a virtual company. It's actually more like a network than it is a company. <clears throat> it's made up of a small entrepreneurial elite, a core professional and technical staff, and then a just-in-time workforce. So the new, the new era brings us near workerless companies in manufacturing and what we call virtual companies, small networks with elite labor forces in the service industry. You see this in Minneapolis and St. Paul and communities all around the world. And I should say that this revolution is affecting developing countries at the same speed that it's affecting the industrial countries. If you go to northern Mexico or Bangalore, India, or Malaysia and Penang, you will see that we are also moving very quickly to traditional labor-intensive industry to elite, high-tech, automated employment. The cheapest worker in the world, the most exploited laborer on this planet, will not be as cheap as the technology coming online to replace them. We are into a new era. In the past, when one sector has mechanized, a new sector has always emerged in time to absorb the dislocated labor. When agriculture mechanized, a lot of farmers here in the Midwest found jobs in the industrial plants. When the industrial plants began to automate, a lot of dislocated workers were retrained for service work, white-collar work. Now all three traditional sectors are moving into the information age, and yes, we do have a new sector emerging. It's called the knowledge sector. It's the essential employment sector of the information age revolution, and political leaders that I work with and economists around the world, they are hoping, they are praying, that this new sector, the knowledge sector, will create more jobs than are destroyed as we make the shift from the industrial to the information age. The knowledge sector, scientists, engineers, highly skilled technicians, educators, producers, writers, professionals, and consultants, knowledge workers, symbolic analysts. And I'm sure you've heard the official mantra by the politicians at election time, our only task at hand is to reskill and retrain our workforce so that they are competitive to the new job opportunities for the 21st century. My friends, 
even if we retrain the entire workforce of the United States of America for knowledge sector jobs, which of course would be difficult, <coughs> excuse me, because many of these jobs require years and years of advanced education. But just for the sake of argument, let us assume we can retrain everyone in this country for knowledge sector jobs. Chances are there will never be enough jobs in the knowledge sector in any country to absorb the millions and millions of workers let go in traditional blue and white collar industrial work. And the reason is this, and I see many of you nodding, you already know what I'm about to say. What separates, <coughs> excuse me, the industrial age from the information age, the industrial age is mass human labor to produce goods and services. That's its signature. By contrast, the information age relies on small and ever smaller elite workforces, highly trained, highly skilled, highly paid, accompanied by increasingly sophisticated intelligent technology. The industrial age ended slave labor. The information age will end mass wage labor. That's the great historical divide we find ourselves on as we move into the 21st century. Now, some see this as a grim, <clears throat> a grim scenario. It may well turn out to be. I would like to see this as one of the great opportunities for civilization. We are on the cusp of a technology revolution so profound that it could free up hundreds of millions of human beings from toil in the marketplace. But we haven't even begun to ask the appropriate questions to turn this from a grim future to a renaissance because we are in deep denial about the nature of this shift taking place. This is a shift as fundamental as the shift from medieval agriculture to the Industrial Revolution. But this shift will take place in less than a half century. In order to turn this around, we'd have to be courageous enough and willing enough and bold enough to ask two tough questions. One. What do we do with the millions of people, especially young people, who will be needed less or not at all in an increasingly automated global economy? That's a fair, straightforward question for the public agenda. The second question, how do we begin a serious public debate on how best to share the vast potential productivity gains of this new technology revolution so it benefits everyone in society and not just a small elite? and at the same time so that it makes, maintains the competitive position of our corporations in the marketplace. These are two tough questions. Because we're not dealing with them, what we're seeing in our country and around the world is the dangerous polarization and a two-tier society emerging. The top 20% of the population in every country is doing well. They're part of this new knowledge sector and they're part of this new information age economy. The bottom 80% of the workforce in every country is the industrial workforce from middle management to the factory floor, and this workforce is slowly, slowly being marginalized out of the new economy. Lower wages, more part-time and just-in-time employment, and more unemployment. The result, more social unrest, more political instability, and on a personal level, more anxiety and fear and bitterness and anger and fury. And because we're not dealing with this issue forthrightly at the center of public politics, the vacuum is being left up to extreme political ideologies to exploit. 
And my friends, as I stand here in the Midwest of this country, I can tell you, for the first time in my lifetime, I am seeing the emergence of what I would call a nascent fascist politics in the heartland of this country. And I spend quite a bit of time in Europe, and we are seeing fascist political parties emerge in every country that I work in in Europe. And that's because we are in denial and not engaged in the responsibility of talking about this technology at the center of American politics. I want to share two statistics. They tell us what we need to know. Today, one billion people on this planet are underemployed or unemployed. That's the latest ILO figures. Now, that's the best the industrial age could do. We're in the sunset years of this great economic era in history. Does anyone here in this room believe for a moment that the information age will create even as many jobs as we move from mass to elite labor? The geopolitics of the coming century is growing population against diminishing job opportunities. The second statistic is chilling. It comes from the Financial Times this year. The 356 wealthiest human beings on this planet today, their combined wealth equals the bottom 40% of humanity, two and a half billion people. I believe we can turn this technology revolution around. We'd have to have a serious and sober debate in each city, in each community, on how to share the gains in a way that works for everyone, including our corporate institutions. Well, how do we begin this task? We borrow from our parents' generation. When our parents' generation were confronted with a second industrial revolution, electricity, they had a vision for the technology. You see, they believed that you work to live. Now, this is important because we now have a generation, many of whom believe you live to work. If we live to work, this technology will never free us. If, however, our vision is that we work to live, then this technology can be salvation, but then we have to make demands. It doesn't come for nothing, and the marketplace and the invisible hand will just not automatically produce the gains. It never has. Whenever you introduce a new technology revolution into society, it creates new power relationships, new opportunities, new advantages, and inequities. If we don't deal with the inequities up front, we risk massive social upheaval, retrenchment, and only years later, a new social contract. We did not deal with the inequities of steam power when it came in. We had massive social upheaval. And only it took years and decades to create a social contract. When electricity came in in the 1920s, the second industrial revolution, we did not deal with the inequities. As a result, we had a Great Depression, a world war, and millions of people on this planet died. It was only in the 1950s that we were able to structure a new social contract for prosperity in the post-World War II era. Today, on the cusp of the information age, we face the same conundrum. Will we have the willingness and courage and foresight to construct a new social contract before social upheaval? I believe that's possible. What did our parents' generation do? They said, look, we want this technology to free us, not for unemployment lines, but for leisure. And they organized, they unionized, they pressured management and government all over the world, and your parents' generation reduced the work week in every country of the world from 60 to 40 hours. They cut it by a third. They increased the pay and benefits, and they did this in every country in less than 40 years. 
and we are the beneficiaries of their vision and mission for the second industrial revolution. My question in the end of work in this book is pretty straightforward. What is the matter with our generation and our children? Why aren't we at least demanding that the new information age be held to the same standards that our parents held the industrial age? If you believe, as I do, that this new information age revolution will at least be as productive as the industrial revolution, then shouldn't we be talking about a 30-hour work week, even a 25-hour work week? These are labor-saving technologies. They save labor. Free time's coming. The only question is unemployment lines or leisure. Share the gains, we all win. Don't share the gains, social upheaval. Let me share with you for a moment why I think we may be able to move toward a 30-hour work week. I work with Fortune 1000 companies, top management all over the world. Let me share with you what they say to me privately, because they will not talk about it publicly, unfortunately. On a micro, micro level, every company I work with wants to cut labor costs to improve the profit margin. But, public, but on a macro level, they're now realizing they have two problems they don't know how to deal with. One, they're losing purchasing power in every country. The workers are not just the workers, they're also the consumers. If you marginalize your workers and don't share the gains of this new information age revolution, who's going to buy your products? That's why every economy in the world is running slow or flat right now. The workers are not just the consumers, they're also the primary investors in the world capitalist system. It's not Bill Gates and Stephen Forbes with their puny few billion dollars that are the major investors. It's millions of working people through their institutional pension funds. There's been a revolution in ownership in the last 40 years. It's the workers of the world who are now the primary investors in capitalism. These funds, these pension funds, the deferred savings of workers negotiated by unions around the world are worth $8 trillion. They own 30% of the U.S. stock market and 40% of the bond market. This is true all over the world. When we marginalize our workers and don't share the gains, we slowly erode purchasing power on one end and the long-term pension fund investment capital essential for the capitalist system on the other. These two Achilles heels dwarf all the discussion in Washington around balanced budgets. So what I'm suggesting to you this afternoon is it's in the interest of management, labor, and the community and country to come to the table to rethink the social contract for the 21st century. It's not about being a good fellow, it's about the bottom line. So, we need a 30-hour work week. For working parents in this country, this is a godsend. It provides a vision and a mission for this technology. Free us to restore the family life of this country. All over the world, politicians are worried about family values, but they're not walking the walk, as we say, cheap grace. Walking the walk means mom and dad need some more time with their children, but what we have now are two parents out there working to make what one parent made 30 years ago. The formula should be six and six by the year 2006. You work six hours when your child's in school, then you have an option to come home when your child comes home. This provides a context, a focus, and a vision for this technology. You see, I think I may be the only optimist in this debate, interesting enough, because all of those who are proselytizing for this technology are not demanding anything of it except more hard work. I think we should demand much more. 
We're going to have to have a 30-hour work week in the United States in every country, and I'm telling you it's inevitable. It will come. Those countries that are preemptive and do it intelligently will be ahead of the curve. Those that don't will be behind the curve. That debate has begun in Italy and France and Germany and Spain. That debate will be here in the United States this year. Even with a shorter work week, though, we have a problem. We still have millions of young people in each country who are not going to be needed in this new automated global economy. What do we do? Well, the problem is the way we're handling the problem. We look to the government or to the marketplace for solutions. In every country I visit, we say either the market will provide the solutions for jobs or the government will. If you're center to right, you vote for the political party that represents the invisible hand of the market, the market will provide. The market will not provide. We are moving, the market is moving from domestic economy to the globe, and it's moving from uh, mass to elite labor forces. It cannot accommodate all the young people. The government, on the other hand, is no longer the employer of last resort. Governments are shrinking. They're not going to be able to provide all of the solutions. So what I would like to suggest to you today, we break the political paradigm. We leave this beautiful church today and we break the political paradigm. We realize that here in the United States and virtually every country in the world, we're not two sectors, we're three sector societies. We keep thinking of government and society as market versus government. We are really three sectors. Once we understand that most countries in the world have three, not two sectors, it opens up the door for a whole fresh new debate on how we rethink the social contract and the nature of work. There's plenty of work to do on this planet beyond the marketplace, beyond the marketplace. There's the market sector, it creates market jobs and market capital. There's the government, it creates government jobs and public capital. Then there's the sprawling third sector, the civil society in every country, it creates social capital in both paid and volunteer work. Here in the United States, we have over a million nonprofit organizations. What is the third sector? It's every organization in this country that's not a corporation or a government agency. It's the service and fraternal organizations, the church and secular organizations, the arts, sports, culture, and community organizations. It's the cultural glue of the United States of America. Many of you give your time to one or more of these organizations every week. If we were to wake up tomorrow morning in this great country and all of this civil society were to disappear overnight, all the institutions and organizations that make up the glue, the wellspring of our country, if it was all to disappear, how long do you think the United States would last? One day? Two days? It would collapse. We call the civil society the third sector, but it's really the primary sector. We've forgotten our history. All through the history of our species, we first established community. We first established social exchange, and only when there's enough trust in place can we create markets and governments. When we cross this great country out onto the western frontier, we first established community, social exchange, and then market exchange and government. We need to understand that the market and government are not the primary sectors, they are the derivative sectors. First there has to be community, then you can have market relations and government. And the rule of thumb is this, the stronger the civil society, 
The stronger the market, the more democratic the government. The weaker the civil society, the more unstable the market, the more undemocratic the government. That's a rule of thumb. This is why empowerment zones have never worked. Whether it's Jack Kemp or President Clinton, they always talk about creating empowerment zones. We get companies to locate in the inner cities. We give them a tax credit. I can report to you this afternoon, all the companies I work with just roll their eyes. They're not going to locate in an inner city ghetto for a few tax credits. However, if there's a community in place, if there's social exchange, build the community and they will come. They won't need tax credits. Build the community and the market will come. It, you know, we have many market libertarians who believe first you have to have a strong market, then it creates a strong community. Completely wrong. That's never happened in history. First you create a strong community, and then you have the trust and the relationships to create a strong market and a decent government. So, what I would like to suggest to you today is we are going to see the emergence of this civil society once again as the primary center for American life, as it was in the last century. In this century, it's been thrown to the margins. It's in a neo-colonial status. This civil society that's not-for-profit sector relies on government grants, private philanthropy, it begs, it pleads. It's not a player. It doesn't even have identity. We have millions and millions of Americans giving to this sector, participating in this sector, working in this sector, and they don't even know it's a sector. They have no sector consciousness. It's an amorphous potential that is about to become a cohesive social voice in cities like St. Paul and Minneapolis and across the world. The reason it's about to become a voice, the reason it's about to be freed, is this. Government's paring down in every community. It's no longer going to be as involved in these local communities. At the same time, the marketplace is moving to the globe and is less involved in local communities. That means the burden, the challenges of all of the communities are going to be squarely laid in the hands of these third sector organizations. We need to be up to the challenge or we'll drown. And being up to the challenge means politicizing this sector bringing it together so it's a player at the center of American political life. We need to believe, as Senator Bill Bradley says, in a three-legged stool. We have three sectors. They're reciprocal even when they're adversarial. Each leg has to be strong for the other. The market leg, the public sector, government leg, and at the center, the civil society. It's the wellspring of our spirit as a people. What I'm suggesting, we now have an opportunity to tax some of the vast potential revenue stream of this new information age revolution and make it available for income so that we can free up millions of young people for new kinds of work in the third sector. Why not have nonprofit organizations here in St. Paul and Minneapolis partner with local government and state government, train and skill and re-educate a new generation and let them begin to compete for potential work in some of the thousands and thousands of third sector organizations in the state of Minnesota. If they land a job, let the state and the city provide an income voucher, a decent wage, so these young men and women can create social capital in their neighborhoods and revive the tradition of this civil society in our country for the next century. It depends on our will and resolve. Will we be willing to have enough vision for the 21st century? We're going to be able to produce the goods and services in this next century 
with a fraction of the workforce we use now. So where are people going to work? There's only four options, the marketplace, the government, the outlaw society, or the community. The marketplace doesn't need everyone, the government's paring down, we're down to two choices, the outlaw society and the community. And my friends, in every country I visit, the outlaw society is emerging as a major force. Far better for us to pay, spend our taxes to rebuild communities than to build prisons. We're going to be taxed one way or the other. It costs $30,000 a year to keep a human being in jail in this country. And when you're in prison, you have no purchasing power, you're not paying taxes, not a good investment. Far better to use the revenue stream from the information age in every community to begin thinking of how we can free up our young people, provide income vouchers to nonprofits, rebuild our communities, and present a vision and mission for the next century. In conclusion, let me say this. People make history. People make histories. There's no fait accompli to what's going to happen in the future. We fill in our own destiny. I believe we have a rare opportunity and a small window open to us in the next 10 years to move this new technology revolution from a grim future to a great renaissance. Will we be willing, on behalf of the next generation, to have a serious debate on how to free up some of the vast revenue stream of this new information age revolution so that we can shorten the work week, allow young parents to be home with their children, free up a generation for important work building our civil society up so that we can move into the next century with a much more humane frame of reference and provide a legacy worthy of this technology revolution. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Rifkin. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church of downtown Minneapolis. Today's speaker is Mr. Jeremy Rifkin, founder of the pre and president of the Foundation on Economic Trends in Washington, D.C., author of The End of Work, who has just spoken here on the topic, Putting Our Culture in Focus, Labor, Technology, and Spirit. Today's forum is co-sponsored by the McKnight Foundation. While the ushers collect the questions, those of you who must return to your business or to other matters may feel free to go, and we will turn immediately to the questions and answer period. Mr. Rifkin, can you give us uh, some examples of where you see um, hope on the horizon, communities where this third sector is uh, taking a visible shape and form that would encourage all of us. I have been visiting countries around the world where the third sector is the fastest growing sector. You know what our most important contribution was to the world? We've lost sight. It wasn't capitalism that made America great. It wasn't even Jeffersonian principles of democracy. Our greatest contribution to the world has been the export of the civil society. You know, when de Tocqueville visited our country in the 1830s from France, he said, you have some new institution here we've never heard of called the Civic Association. You don't wait for government. You don't wait for industry. You organize in the community. He said, I can't help but think that this is the seeds of your future greatness. 
We've been exporting the civic association all over the world. It's called the nonprofit organization, the non-governmental organization. And now this civil sector is about to come of age. It's about to ripen into a social force of the center so the community can become the primary wellspring for both democratic government and a flourishing market in the 21st century. So I have great hope. I should also tell you that there's going to be a summit, a president's summit on the future to renew the civil society this April. And I'm on the steering committee for that summit. All the past presidents, President Clinton, the First Lady, will be there. It'll be chaired by Colin Powell. And the idea is to focus on the next generation and provide a renewal, if you will, of the spirit of the civil society that was so responsible for making us a great country. So I believe in this country we're going to see a great renaissance of this sector in the next 10 years. Thank you. One person asks you to speak to the secession of the successful. What is the appeal to the top 20% to support the civil society? Let me, uh, let me respond that there's a bottom line need. There is no fortress secure enough to hide. We're creating gated communities for the wealthy all over this country. I was in Mexico two weeks ago and a business leader said to me, we're creating two types of prisons in every country, a prison for the poor, they commit crime, there's no work for them, we put them in jail, and then a prison for the rich. We have our fortress communities, our gated communities. We have to increasingly imprison ourselves away from the masses. So what I would say is a secure society requires our obligation to our fellow human beings. There are not enough prisons to house those who need responsible work in the next century. We need to free people up for new contributions, and there's not any place secure enough for the rich to hide. We're going to have to share. If not, we're going to risk massive social upheaval in the coming years. What happens to the environment in the new information age? I believe that uh, one of the primary reasons we have an environmental problem is that our, our focus in the last 300 years has been almost exclusively the marketplace. I believe in the marketplace, but I don't believe it's the, the end all for our life on this planet. It's essential but it's not, the highest, uh, it's not the highest point of departure for what we're about. As long as our primary identification is the marketplace and selling our labor in the marketplace, then we'll continue to consume the rewards of that labor at the shopping mall. I would be willing to bet that the more time people invest of their time in the civil society, helping their fellow human beings, the less time they're at the shopping mall. Not because they've ever thought about the environment, it's only because they have more enjoyment connecting with their fellow human being to create social capital. Shopping's a substitute for real relationships. Now, let me be clear, I'm not opposed to shopping and to owning nice things. That's part of what it means to be a human being. But there's a difference between that and when shopping becomes a fetish and a substitute for human relationships. So I, I, I'm hoping that as the next generation becomes more prepared for their obligations and commitments to the civil society, they will see that deep participation in community is an antidote to more and more consumption. Who among the national leaders of the third sector are gearing up to use your analysis and press the political debate on these issues? Well, I was interested to see that so many people who have left Congress are setting up third sector organizations already. They, they smell that uh, there's big changes happening here. I noticed that Senator Bill Bradley has a new book out on the best-seller list. 
And uh, he is now uh, the new chairman of the Civic League, and he's talking about the three-legged stool of politics. I know that uh, Congresswoman Pat Schroeder is now involved in the third sector, as well as Senator Nunn and many, many others. I believe as the third sector becomes more of a social force in each community, both political parties will start to reposition. You see, now we have the party of the marketplace and the party of the government. They're both losing sight that the real party affiliation should be the community. Because organized labor has been strong enough over the years to pressure management to share the gains. So there's enough purchasing power to maintain the economy and enough pension fund investments to maintain the capitalist stock and bond market. We need to understand that employees should not be treated as second-class citizens, but as colleagues by management. The, we should start looking at the idea of a collegial relationship and understand we're all part of a network that together creates a functioning economy. The workers are the consumers and the investors as well as the workers. Once we get that squarely in mind, we may have a new generation of management that understands they're part of a collegial institution, not a hierarchical institution. Let me also say that I believe what's going to happen with organized labor is two things. They're going to discover their new tool. The strike is no longer as powerful a tool as it used to be because of automation. But they have a tool far more powerful that's called the pension fund. It's the trillions and trillions of dollars. It's $8 trillion out there that are the workers' money. I believe we're going to see a new approach to social investment in the coming decade. We think a social investment is investing in companies that do not... Uh, uh, that honor human rights or that honor the environment. Now, in the next decade, we're going to go right to the center of power and say unions only invest in companies that share the productivity gains with their workers with shorter work week, better pay and benefits because the workers happen to be their shareholders as well. well that got what, a few murmurs, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> what will turn around the trend toward more hours but less income for our labor. How, how do we reconcile labor shortage um, with uh, idea with stagnant wages? Shorter work weeks? Yeah, what, yeah, what we'll give. Well, let me say that um, the question is, can we convince employers here in Minnesota to reduce the work week and increase the pay? Do you think we can do that? If I could show you how it could be done in, in one minute, would it be worth the afternoon? And I've not had a CEO tell me this couldn't be done. Here's an idea that came out of the French elections between Chirac and Jospin for the presidency. This was an idea by an Arthur Anderson part-time consultant in Paris. I'll give you my version. Tomorrow morning, the government of the United States could be a deal-maker. Not a punisher, not a regulator, but a negotiator and deal-maker and say to management and labor, I'm going to bring you to the table. We need to rethink the social contract. We need to share the gains so we can maintain purchasing power and investment in this economy. So you companies, the government can say, you voluntarily reduce your work week by 15%, voluntary, so you can hire on more workers. Two, put in a profit sharing plan so all your workers have a stake in the new technology. So it's working for them, not against them. Three, and this is a little tougher, agree to a formula by which compensation to top management isn't totally disproportionate to what the rest of your workers are getting. Now, why would... Why would any company agree to these things voluntarily to, re to share the productivity gains? In return, the federal government can say, you do this voluntarily and we will pay all your payroll taxes for your company. Do you know any CEO that could turn that down? It's too powerful. 
It's such a powerful incentive. If you turn it down, you're less competitive. It's voluntary. But in return, you have to share the gains significantly enough so that we don't risk social upheaval and we can move this economy. The government will lose revenue by paying those, those payroll taxes, correct? But what the French figured out is you pick up the difference on the backside almost immediately. At a shorter work week, more people are working. Fewer people are on welfare. More people are bringing home paychecks. More people are buying goods and services, and more people are paying taxes, which increases the revenue stream at every level of government. This year, I was invited back to France by the president of the National Assembly, Philip Sagan. We reintroduced this idea. The French legislated into law this fall. If French, the French can do part of this, they didn't do all of it. They did part of it. If the, they said, if you reduce your work week by 15% so you can hire on workers, we'll pay half your payroll taxes for you. If the fifth largest industrial power in the world can do this, so can all the other countries. This is just one of many creative venues. There are many more in the end of work. There are many more that we could think of that we could direct a collaborative relationship between management, labor, and government working together to find ways to create the incentives so we can share the gains and still keep our, comp our companies competitive here in Minnesota and around the world. We were talking uh, r earlier in, in my study about uh, the news this week about cloning um, and the response of people to the cloning. There's a, a comment here from uh, one of the members of the audience that I'd like you, in light of that, to respond to. This person says, I agree with almost everything you have postulated. I do see a problem, a huge problem in organizing enough support for one simple change. We need to recognize the need for thorough examination of ethics underlined and training our youngest citizens on the need for ethics in all of our interrelationships. Well, let me, let me end with the, uh, something. That, this is totally unrelated, but some of you want to probably discuss this cloning issue this week. If you had a chance, I did an editorial in USA Today, I think it was yesterday or the day before, which covers some of this. This is the most important single technological development in world history, even though it's being trivialized this week. We have to understand what this is about. For the first time in history, we can move from conception to replication. All through history, our biology and our society has been based on the union of male, female, sperm, and egg, and by extension, family, kin, and social order. Now that's only an option. As of this week, it is now possible to move from reproduction to replication. And that is to use the kind of quality controls, design principles, and engineering standards we applied in the industrial age to inanimate material and now apply it directly to our own species and the other animals we travel with here on Earth. This is a great turning point for our civilization. And if you read the first few pages of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, that's exactly what he laid out in the decanting room. Ted Howard and I wrote a book some of you might have read 20 years ago called Who Should Play God, saying that we would have human cloning by the turn of this century. The scientific community said, Mr. Rifkin, you're an alarmist. This will never happen. Now it's judgment day. It's judgment day. So what I would like to ask is this. Where are the scientists? Why are they not speaking up? Where are the corporate interests? Why are they not speaking up? I believe we should outlaw animal and human cloning for ethical and environmental reasons. I think, it's, I think we have a responsibility to our fellow creatures as stewards. Every creature on this planet has a right to their individual, unique birth life experience on this planet, including our own species. So, 
I'm in favor of, I'm in favor of legislation and being passed in every country, and we have been in touch with hundreds of NGO organizations in the last 48, 72 hours in 40 countries. We're going to begin to introduce legislation in every country to outlaw animal and human cloning, and I believe we should make the punishment so severe for human cloning that our fellow human beings will think once, twice, and many times before they introduce this practice. I believe human cloning is a new form of genetic bondage where we enslave a being as a result of our design principles and our narcissism and expedient short-term interest. I think it ought to be outlawed. I think it's time for the human race to make a statement. And I believe now we should say just because it can be done does not mean it should be done. Thank you. We have time for one, oh, one, we do. All one right. more question. God, I, I'm out of breath rushing through this thing. <laughs> All of this for radio, you one see. One more we question, and, more we have, leisure here. and we have just a couple of minutes, but right. uh, we do have a couple of minutes. All right. Um, what you have been talking with us about is, is obviously out of a frame of reference. It has to do with what life is about and a sense of ethics um, that frames your consciousness. Um, can you tell us, uh, since this is about conscience, this series, about conscience and key issues from an ethical perspective, what, who and what have uh, most influenced you uh, to bring you to this uh, frame of reference? Well, you know, I, I'm not sure how reflective I've been on my past. When you get to be 52, you don't want to really think about it too much. <laughs> uh, I, I will say that, uh, like most of you here, I was, I was influenced by my religious background. I grew up in Reformed Judaism. I was uh, very affected by Judeo-Christian theology and by the inspiration of my parents uh, and my family. I've been deeply involved in both the marketplace and in the civil society. And like many people in this room, was uh, deeply influenced by the 1960s and the war in Southeast Asia and the civil rights movement here in this country. But even more so, I think my, my personal journey is not unlike most people here. We're part of a great tradition in this country. And sometimes we don't learn enough about it, but we all come out of that 200-year tradition of civil society where we give to each other in the community in order to optimize all of our best interests. And so um, I don't know if I can say much more than that. I didn't have any revelation on the way to Damascus uh, or on the way to Jerusalem. <laughs> but I think that all of us in this country, we are of two minds. On the one hand, uh, we do believe in the rough and tumble of the marketplace. But on the other hand, we do believe in giving ourselves and being stewards to our fellow human being. I think the key is balance between these two great traditions. Aristotle wrote a nice little book on Nicomethean ethics. He said, always have balance. The marketplace has a place, but it should not be the exclusive frame of reference for the decisions we make in the world. I believe that uh, we also should have a place for the intrinsic value of life, for stewarding each other. And that place belongs in the community and our deep commitment to each other. Thank you, and enjoyed being here with you today.